Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, for those of you who say that Peter Schiff only does podcasts when the Dow is down, the Dow Jones was up 547 points today, and I am doing a podcast. But, you know, before I get into the meat of this podcast, I want to talk a little bit about my podcast because I just happened to notice that this is going to be the 400th episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. So I want to take a moment to thank my audience, everybody who has been listening to the podcast, especially the people who have listened to all 400 episodes. And, you know, by the way, if you missed a few, they're all archived. So you can go back and you can catch up to any episodes that you missed. Of course, some people have been listening for a lot longer if you know, or maybe you don't, I was doing a daily syndicated talk show, the Peter Schiff uh, show for, I don't know, two or three years. I started it after my failed Senate campaign to try to continue to uh, get my ideas out there. But I eventually ran into a problem where I just didn't have enough hours of the day to be committed to be at a mic for two hours every day to do a live show, even though I enjoyed it. We had a lot of guests. I took a lot of calls just something I didn't have the time to do. And, you know, before that, before I ran for Senate, I used to do a once-a-week call-in show called Wall Street Unspun. I know there are still some people who are listening to the podcast that go all the way back to the Wall Street Unspun days. And so special thanks to the people who have listened all of the years. And remember, I mentioned this uh, a couple of times on the podcast, but if you have been listening to my podcast, certainly if you've listened to all of them, do me a favor and rate the podcast. Whichever uh, platform you're on, iTunes or any place else, you can rate the podcast. You can make comments about the podcast. You know, put five stars down there if you really think it's a great podcast and, and, and leave some type of positive feedback. Because what I have been told is that when they compile the rankings, it's not just how many people 
are listening or downloading the podcast, but the, the reaction, the feedback, what kind of comments uh, people are leaving. And so I want my podcast to be as high as possible in the rankings so that people just may stumble on them and start listening to them. Because I know there's a lot of irrelevant nonsense, a lot of fake news out there. Very few media outlets, certainly conventional media outlets, put out my particular perspective. In fact, a lot of the mainstream media has been going out of their way to shut out my perspective. A lot of the programs that used to have me on no longer have me on at all. A lot of the networks, I'm now on some of these fringe networks. In fact, I was on RT America twice today, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. But getting on mainstream TV the way I used to is very, very difficult. One of the only exceptions, I guess, is Fox Business. I have been able to get on Fox Business once in a while. I was on again with Liz Clayman on Countdown to the Closing Bell. If you didn't see that interview, It's up on my YouTube channel, and Liz kept me on for probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. Of course, I didn't talk the whole time, but I was there. You know, she does a really, really good job uh, on her program, and I'm sure I'm going to be on more. So that's the the program that you guys should watch. If you're watching uh, any of the financial news, forget about watching CNBC. Apart from the fact that they never have me on, Liz Clayman does a really, really good job. I'm a big fan of her show, Countdown to the Closing Bell. So the final hour uh, of the market, three to four, just, you know, check out Fox Business. And every once in a while, you'll probably see Peter Schiff. But for people who don't want to wait, you know, for Fox Business to have me on, they should be listening directly to my my podcast. So make a comment, like it, you know, if you happen to be listening on Facebook, YouTube, comment on it on YouTube. You can like it. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe. And you know, if you're listening to my podcast on Shift Radio or one of the various uh, podcast platforms, just go to YouTube and subscribe to that channel anyway. You know, I I got over 200,000 subscribers uh, not too long ago. Now I'm above 220,000. So if you haven't subscribed, you might as well do it. Things are going to get a lot more interesting, I think, going forward. I mean, a lot of people may take comfort in the fact that we had this 500-point rally in the Dow. Okay, the bear market is not here. It was just another correction. Look, corrections or bear markets have rallies. So maybe this 500-point move up today is the first upward correction in the new bear market, right? There's no way to say that we have not entered a bear market. I mean, it's possible that it will be a bear market. You can't call it a bear market now, even though maybe 25% of the stocks are in bear markets. The majority are not, but it's only a question of time. There are a lot of stocks that are, are down quite a bit, but just not enough to be a bear market. But remember, some of the most spectacular moves that you're going to see to the upside in a market happen in bear markets, right? Historically, the biggest updates have been in bear markets, and that is to try to create a false sense of confidence, a false sense of hope. You know, that is the slope that the bear market slides down is a slope of hope, just like a bull market climbs a wall of worry. 
and the worry is a sharp decline to get people to get out, right? This, in a, in a bear market, it's the opposite. You get a sharp rally to create a false sense of confidence. So anybody who was thinking about selling a couple of uh, days ago, now they're, like, glad they didn't sell. They're, like, you know, wiping their, their brow or, oh, glad. It's a good thing I didn't panic and get out. And who knows? The next thing you know, we're at even lower levels, and now they're wishing they had got out, but they got they got you know suckered to stay in based on that sharp rally that rekindled the sense of hope that this is just a, a, a another uh, correction, just like we've had many many times before in this bull market. So it's possible that is the case, right? Maybe we will go on to make new highs. It's too soon to tell, but for me. There is so much overwhelming evidence that would argue that the bull market is over. And that's basically what I want to spend a little bit time focusing on is more of the bad news. And by the way, you know, the, the real problem stocks, the, the housing stocks, I think, had a rally today. But uh, autos are still very weak. And the economic data that I've been seeing has been weak. But nonetheless, as I said earlier, the Dow is up 547 points. That was 2.17%. But the NASDAQ composite was up 214 points, 2.89% on the day. And the Russell 2000, which had been getting beaten up, that was up 43 points today, 2.82%. So a big rally. Gold was only off a couple of bucks. You know, it started the day higher, uh, five, six, seven dollars but it really, in the face of this tremendous rally, uh, gold kind of lost its bid. But it didn't really sell off. It was only down a little bit. So gold stocks in general were down, but not much. And the dollar spent almost the entire day negative. It was actually down higher than it was at the close earlier on. So the dollar gained back some ground, but it never went positive, which again showed me that it wasn't broad-based interest in dollar assets. There was just buying of stocks. In fact, the strongest stocks on the day, or some of the strongest stocks, were the emerging market names or some of the foreign names. So maybe beneath the surface, we do have a rotation going on. And in fact, yesterday, I didn't do a podcast when the Dow was down about 80 points. It sold off into the close. But yesterday was the trifecta because not only was the stock market down, but the bond market and the dollar were both down. Today, the bond market didn't go uh, down either, even though you had this 500-plus point rally in the stock market, which would normally be problematic for the bond market. But for some reason, uh, the bond sellers were at bay today. But I do expect them uh, to return uh, with a vengeance at some point. In fact, one of the uh, the big stories that's been going all around that should impact the bond market is the increase in the deficit. You may have read the story that in fiscal 2018, the budget deficit was $779 billion. That represented a 17% increase over the budget deficit for the prior fiscal year. And this is a big increase and this is a big number and it is being widely reported but what all of the uh, news outlets are overlooking, and one of the things, again, that I focus on on this podcast, which is why we need to make sure that as many people as possible are listening to it. So, and by the way, not only should you just you know interject, uh, add some comments, but tell your friends to listen to this podcast. I mean, 
put it out on your own social media pages, on your own Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, wherever you are. Just tell people to check out the Peter Schiff Show uh, podcast. But one of the facts that the mainstream is overlooking is the increase in the national debt that took place during the 2018 fiscal year. Because normally you would think that the increase in the national debt would match the budget deficit from that year. Because what the national debt measures is the increase in the accumulation of all the previous budget deficits. So if the budget deficit for fiscal uh, 2018 was 780 billion, you would assume that the government added 780 billion to the national debt. But if you made that assumption, you would be wrong because the national debt actually increased by better than 1.2 trillion during the same time period. So in other words, the actual increase in the debt was better than 60% greater than what the government pretended the debt increased and what the the media is reporting. Well, what is the difference? Some people might not know. How is that possible? If the government only borrowed $780 billion, how did the national debt increase by $1.2 trillion? And that's because the government actually borrowed $1.2 trillion. It's just that when the government is doing its accounting, it doesn't count all of the spending as part of the budget. It's off budget. And to the extent that they have to borrow to finance something that is off the budget, then they do not score any of that debt as part of their budget for that year. This is kind of like an accounting gimmick that they use. It is something that they kind of borrow from Gap and the private sector when it comes to trying to account for extraordinary events, which is an event that isn't recurring. It just happens once in a while. And so you want to exclude it from your numbers because you want to paint a truer picture of what you can expect uh, from a company, let's say in a normal year, when you you know don't include an extraordinary event. So what happens is the government just has all these expenditures that come up that they didn't necessarily budget for. And so they say, well, this is an extraordinary item. So we're not going to include the money we borrowed to finance it. But of course, that's all a bunch of nonsense. Now you take again something like a hurricane, you get a hurricane and maybe the government has to spend $20 million for this hurricane. They're going to say, well, this is an extraordinary event. We don't have Hurricane Michael every year. So the money we had to borrow uh, to bail out you know, cities or towns uh, from Hurricane Michael, we don't want to count that. Except that's a lie because every year, maybe it's not Hurricane Michael, but it's Hurricane something. And if it's not a hurricane, it's a fire, it's a flood. There's always natural disasters. And every year the government spends money, uh, you know, in the aftermath. And so to say that this is a one-off extraordinary item doesn't make any sense. What you need to do is look at all the money that the government borrows in a fiscal year and count that. I mean, just just because it wasn't budgeted, if a bunch of extra spending occurred that was off budget, well, you still have to count that as part of your budget deficit for that year. But the government doesn't, and the media lets them get away with it. You know, And the government has all kinds of selective accounting. Uh, when it comes to how they're going to mimic the private sector. Because if the government was really going to report the increase in the national debt, they wouldn't just report how much the outstanding bonds grew, right? That's the funded debt. What corporations do is if they're 
um, unfunded or contingency liabilities increase, they have to account for that. Right now, what, what would be a contingent liability that the U.S. government has? Well, the U.S. government guarantees home mortgages, right? Now, if a home mortgage goes into failure, if a borrower defaults and the lender loses money, the government has to pick up the difference. That's a liability. Now, how many mortgages did the government guarantee in fiscal 2018? I don't know, but billions and billions of dollars. Now, are they all going to end up in default? No. But some are going to. And you can statistically try to estimate what the likely probability is of default and how much money the government may be on the hook for as a result of these guarantees. And that is an additional liability, which should be added to the national debt. The, the total amount of contingency liabilities taken on in that year should be included in that number. And it's not being included. See, corporations would include it. In fact, if a corporation didn't include it, I mean, they, they, they could be fined. I mean, they'd be violating accounting laws if you excluded the increase in contingent liabilities because you have to present an accurate picture of your liabilities to investors, to creditors. But the government is not concerned about accuracy. They just cherry pick the accounting rules that they like, and then they ignore the ones that they don't. And, and so... A liability that is contingent on an event happening, which in this case, somebody defaulting on their loan, that's still something that you should account for. But the government does not. But also you have all sorts of unfunded liabilities where the government hasn't actually borrowed any money, but they still incur the liability. That would be you know, Medicare or Social Security, right? Everybody that's entitled to receive Medicare or Social Security, the government owes this money. Just because they haven't borrowed it, they still promised it. Now, of course, yeah, not everybody is going to collect. There are people that are going to die when they're 50 and they're not going to get any Social Security, right? And so the government's off the hook. But actuarially, you could figure out, you know, how many people uh, the government has promised benefits to and figure out a, a present value for that expected liability. And how much did that increase? Because every fiscal year, more benefits are being earned, supposedly, by beneficiaries. And so more of these unfunded liabilities are added to the government's balance sheet every fiscal year, yet the increase that is being talked about in the media completely ignores the increase in unfunded liabilities that took place during that given year. So what is being reported as far as the extra debt that the government has taken on is just the tiny tip of an enormous iceberg. And it's the entire iceberg that we have to worry about, not just the tip. You know, debt is a very dangerous thing, especially when interest rates are rising. When interest rates are falling, of course, interest rates have been falling in the United States since the early 80s. We've been in a major bull market in bonds, and that decline in interest rates has, has made it possible for us to service this enormous debt that has been building up over the years. But if we've actually turned the corner and we're now in the early stages of a long-term bear market where interest rates keep getting higher and higher and higher, this debt is going to produce an enormous crisis. It's going to produce the equivalent of a national bankruptcy, whether through default or through inflation. In fact, if you want to look at it playing out on a smaller scale, yesterday, Sears, Roebuck & Company, or I don't think they, I mean, maybe they're just Sears now, but they filed for bankruptcy. They had something like $5 billion in debt, 
and now they are they're broke. And of course, you know, Sears has been around for over a hundred years. In fact, Sears basically was the Amazon of its day. It's dis- it disrupted retailing with their Sears Roebuck catalog because basically what that was, they mailed these catalogs all over the country, and then you could just shop with the catalog, which is kind of like shopping online, just a more primitive version. But it was a competitor to the brick and mortar. Uh, retailers, local retailers, when somebody can now order something from Sears and Roebuck rather than go to a local mom and pop uh, store and buy something, they could just use the catalog and they could pick up their phone. And obviously the telephone was a big facilitator of Sears and Roebuck because now you can see stuff in the catalog and you can pick up the phone and you can you can order, right? It wasn't, you know, like going online, but it was a, a step in that direction. So they were like the Amazon, the Walmart of their day, and here they are bankrupt now, in part, ironically, to the, the Amazon of today, which is the Sears and Roebuck of yesterday. This Amazon is a modern Sears, just like Sears uh, was the equivalent of uh, Amazon in, in its day. But now it's broke. But the debt that they accumulated is a big reason that they're broke. Obviously, if they didn't have all this debt, they could have survived. They could have scaled back. They could have done something. But when you lever yourself up, uh, you you know deplete a lot of those options. And that's what the United States has done. We are one gigantic Sears. Uh, and you know we are headed for a massive uh, a massive national bankruptcy, one way or another. Either the honest way because we default, or the dishonest way, but more likely way because we inflate. You know the economic data points that came out uh, last couple of days. Two of them that I thought were interesting or particularly of interest was the uh, import export price numbers that came out on Friday because. The prices of all the stuff that we buy went up by a half a percent. And the price of all the stuff that we sell was unchanged. So we have to pay more for what we're buying, but we're not getting more for what we're selling. This is more indication that we are losing the trade war. And remember, the import prices going up does not include the tariffs. The tariffs are tacked on after. So that just you know adds insult to injury that not only is the stuff that we're importing more expensive, but now we got to pay a tax on top of it uh, thanks to the tariff. But today we got the retail sales number, and I'm surprised that there wasn't more of a reaction. In fact, maybe it was this weak retail sales number that is the reason that the bond market was not bothered by the big rally in the stock market because they were looking for an increase of six-tenths of 1% for retail sales. And instead, they only rose by 0.1%. 0.1%. Now, obviously, that is a small number. And if you take out automobiles and gasoline, the number was flat, unchanged, right? But if you take out just autos and leave in gasoline, then prices actually fell 0.1%. So obviously, the reason that including gasoline resulted in the unchanged number is because gas prices went up. It's not that people are buying more gallons. They're probably buying fewer gallons. They're just paying more money for the gas that they're buying. But you strip that out and retail sales fell. And that's the first time that retail sales fell since May of 2017. 
And you would think that with sales falling, there would be more concern out there that the economy is not nearly as strong as it is being uh, portrayed. Now, speaking about retail sales, too, I wanted to mention a story that I read relating to Walmart that they had just settled a lawsuit that was brought by over 100,000 cashiers. And this suit has been going on for 10 years now. And in fact, a lot of the cashiers aren't even working anymore. Some of them are retired because, you know, it's been a decade in the making. God knows how much money Walmart has actually spent defending itself against this frivolous lawsuit, but they decided to settle it now, and they're paying $65 million to settle the lawsuit. Now, of course, when you think about the fact that there's over 100,000 cashiers that are going to be divvying up whatever the lawyers don't take, and if you're assuming the contingency lawyers are taking a third, maybe they're even taking 40%, but let's say they're taking a third. I'm not exactly sure. Um, But let's say they took a third, then that means that 100,000 cashiers are divvying up the uh, the $65 million. That's about 400 bucks per person. Yet the lawyers, right, a handful of rich lawyers, they're going to divvy up $20 million because they shook down Walmart for 10 years and they finally got tired of paying legal bills. And so they wrote a check, which they probably should have wrote 10 years ago, uh, but they probably stood on principle And they wrote it now. And this, again, is out in California. This is crazy California labor law. One of the reasons why more and more companies are going to do whatever they can to avoid hiring people in California. You know, now they've got these ridiculous requirements for women to be on the boards of of companies out there. But this lawsuit was brought on behalf of cashiers because Walmart wasn't providing them with a chair or a stool, that they had a stand while they did their job, and so they were suing because they thought they should have been given chairs. Now, first of all, if you apply for a job as a cashier, you need to ask up front if you're going to be sitting or standing. And you know, and if you don't ask, you're going to find out on your first day on the job whether or not you're sitting down or standing up. And if you don't want to stand then you don't take the job. If the job is standing behind a cash register, then you can't complain later on that you weren't given a chair because you knew that when you accepted the job. Now, obviously, Walmart has reasons for not you know, giving their employees chairs. I mean, obviously, it's more comfortable when you're sitting in a chair, right? But you know, the people who are coming to buy stuff, who are waiting in line, They're not in chairs. They're standing up. So maybe they want the cashiers to kind of be at eye level with the customers. Maybe it's faster and easier if you're standing up uh, to ring up the sales and to move the merchandise and to to make sure that all the merchandise is being rung up. I mean, maybe if the workers are sitting in a chair, who knows? Maybe they'll just fall asleep on the job. I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons that Walmart wanted the cashiers to stand and, and not sit. Um, I mean, there are some jobs. I mean, I think most uh, people in toll booths, uh, they're usually sitting in a chair. But I mean, if they, they're raised uh, way up in the air. So maybe for them, it's easier. But if Walmart makes a determination that it wants its cashiers to, to stand, then that's the job. And if you don't want to stand behind your register, just don't work as a cashier at Walmart. Work someplace else. Look, I, you know, there are a lot of cashiers. You go to banks. You know, you go to the teller window, they're all standing up. They're not sitting in chairs. 
go to uh, a car rental place at the airport. You go wait in line. All the people that are working behind, like, none of it, nobody's sitting in a chair, right? They're all standing up behind this counter and they're eye level with the customers. So this was a perfectly legitimate uh, requirement for the job. People don't need a chair. I mean, they could take a break. I mean, it's probably even healthier to stand up. It's probably better posture, better for your back, you know, that you're not just sitting in a chair all day. Um, But they sued, and now they had to write this big check. But what kind of message is this sending to Walmart? The message is automation, right? Automate, right? Get rid of people. I mean, they want chairs. All right, well, let's just get rid of them. Let's get some robots because they don't require chairs. Let's have people scan their own stuff and and use their smartphones to pay for their merchandise. I mean, as you keep suing people for hiring people and punishing employers because they are not um, um, providing the workers with everything that you think they should have, even though the workers accepted the jobs and the conditions, what you're doing is you're telling companies, don't hire people. Hire as few people as possible. Automate, outsource. And that is exactly what's going to happen as a result of this. You know, I did this uh, interview earlier today on television. I did this little debate uh, with a real uh, socialist, Marxist-type guy. And he was trying to claim that the tax cuts were a giveaway to the rich, the uh, Trump tax cuts, that we were just putting money in the pockets of rich people. And I had to point out, wait a minute. When you cut somebody's taxes, you're not putting money into their pocket. You're just taking less money out of their pocket, right? You're not giving money to the rich when you take less. The giving is the taxing, right? He was like, we're redistributing wealth to the rich. No, you're not. The rich already have the wealth. They generated the wealth. You redistribute it away from the rich. So anything that you let somebody keep is not a gift. So I corrected him, but then he went out and said that we need the workers to get more money because they create the wealth. This guy actually said on camera that the workers created the wealth. He said, you know, um, if you're wearing wearing clothing, where did that clothing come from? It came from some worker who had to make it. And so all the wealth comes from the workers. And the people who own the companies, they're getting rich off the, the, the wealth that's being created by their employees. And they're just kind of riding on their coattails. I mean, this stuff was straight out of Karl Marx. And the fact that people actually believe this nonsense, I think we're going to have this interview uh, up on my YouTube channel. So you should check it out. But I pointed out that workers don't create wealth. What they do is they do a job and they get paid a wage. They don't create anything. It's their bosses who create the wealth. It's the entrepreneurs. Because when he talked about people making clothing, they're not making clothing with their hands. I mean, if they were making it by hand, it would cost a fortune. They're using tools. They're using machines. That's where the wealth is being created. I mean, anybody could show up and accept a paycheck, right? You do what you're told. But somebody had to tell you what to do, how to do it, and provide you with the capital to get it done. That's where the wealth is created. It's workers who benefit from the creation of wealth. They benefit because they're able to earn a salary, and they benefit because they're able to buy products. They don't produce them on their own. I mean, just leave the workers by themselves, and what are they going to do? Right? It's almost like think about uh, an orchestra where you have a bunch of people who can play an instrument. 
Well, without the conductor, it's just a bunch of noise. They don't know what to do. Somebody has to organize it all. So if you have a bunch of people that want to work, unless you've got somebody to organize everybody who can figure out what has to be done and who has to do it and assign the jobs, and then you have to have the savings and the capital and the know-how, the hardest thing is to be a businessman, to be an entrepreneur, to be an employer. The easiest thing is to show up and do what you're told and collect a check. So for this moron to think that all the wealth is created by people who show up and do blue-collar jobs, I mean, look, you got plenty of poor countries that have lots of workers. Why are they not rich? They're not rich because they don't have the entrepreneurs. They don't have the entrepreneurs because they have too much government. They don't have savings. They don't have capital. So it's 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 a it's an interesting or a fun uh, interview if you get a chance to watch it. But the bottom line is these type of frivolous lawsuits that really enrich the lawyers. The the cashiers are getting nothing. They're just being used as a vehicle for the lawyers to 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 milk these companies. But ultimately, workers are being sacrificed because the lawyers get rich and they destroy employment opportunities for everybody else in the process. So as a result of all these frivolous lawsuits, we destroy employment opportunities and we drive up prices for everybody. So we all suffer a lower standard of living. All these laws need to be repealed. They got to, you know, this is nonsense. You do not like the fact that you got to stand as a cashier, then don't take a job as a cashier. You find a company that has seated cashiers, and that's the job you apply for. But apparently now, of course, Walmart agreed that it's going to provide access to stools or some nonsense you know, in this settlement. But basically, the only thing that happened is they stopped spending money on their lawyers, and the plaintiff's lawyers you know, are having a party. You know, while I'm on the topic of stupid things that governments do, I'm here in Puerto Rico, and I just read today that the Puerto Rican government now has passed an initiative or a new law, whatever it is, but it requires that all workers who are doing construction on government projects, they're going to be paid a minimum wage of $15 an hour, which is a lot of money in Puerto Rico, considering that the average Puerto Rican's income is less than half of the average income in Kentucky or not even I, I, whatever is the poorest state. I don't think it's Kentucky, but maybe, no. but whatever the poorest state is, Arkansas or something like that, uh, Puerto Rico is half of that. So basically $15 minimum wage is like $30 minimum wage. And that's the lowest, right? The guy that's just sweeping floors, you know, picking up nails, he's got to get paid $30 an hour. Now, why would the government of Puerto Rico require this? Well, obviously, number one, sure, the people that get $30 an hour who are doing $5 an hour worth of work, yeah, they love it, right? They're going to vote for you. Oh, this is great. I'm getting $30 an hour. But you might think, wait a minute, but what about the taxpayers now? Because these are just government projects. And so now any construction in a government building is going to cost the taxpayers a fortune because they're going to have to pay so much for labor. Well, here's what's going on. The U.S. government is giving Puerto Rico some money, grants, to do construction to rebuild from Hurricane Maria. But the way the U.S. government is doing it, the grants are based on how much it costs to do the construction and how much the labor is. So by jacking up wages, they can inflate the cost of construction. And now the U.S. government is going to give them a bigger check, right? Because they're saying that it costs more to do the work because instead of paying workers $5 or $10 an hour, we're paying them $15 an hour. So now all the rebuilding and construction projects are more expensive. So now Puerto Rico can get more government money from the federal government, which of course hurts the federal government because they're writing a bigger check. But the unintended consequences that are going to be done to the Puerto Rican economy are huge because this is going to drive up construction costs 
all over the island because all the best workers are going to want to work on these government jobs to get the $15 an hour. And of course, they're going to overstaff, right? The government, whenever they have a construction project, they're going to hire a lot more people than they need, especially when the government is paying uh, for it, the federal government. So they're going to start hiring up all of the construction workers who are going to want to work for you know $15 an hour or more. And so now if you're in the private sector and you need to hire somebody, well, the costs are much higher. And so what is that going to do to private sector construction? It's going to go down. I mean, let's say you were thinking about building a hotel in in Puerto Rico, we need a lot more hotels here. We need to build up the tourism industry. Let's say you were thinking about doing it, and now all of a sudden the cost of construction, the hotel has gone way up, and now you decide not to do it. You know, I heard there were these rumors they were going to build a new hospital here in, in Dorado. It was a joint venture. It was a private company that was going to build it. Now I'm, I'm hearing that they're, they're not going to do it because it's going to cost too much to build it. I'm not even sure if they were going to do it in the first place or if it was a rumor, but it makes sense that if private enterprise is doing the math and they're trying to decide whether a certain construction project is worth it, they have to do a cost-benefit analysis. So they have to look at the cost of construction versus the benefit that they hope to derive. And if the government is artificially driving up the cost of local labor, construction labor, and so you're now it's now going to cost more money to build everything, well, now you have to do the numbers again. And maybe something that was worthwhile if you could have paid an average of $8 an hour for construction workers, maybe a project that economically made sense and was going to get a green light, now it's got a red light. Now it doesn't make sense anymore because now at $15 an hour or maybe more, it's too expensive and so things don't happen. So because the government is going to be trying to get money from the federal government and overpaying government workers, it's going to screw up the economy for the entire island because you're going to destroy private sector construction jobs that might otherwise have been created, and you're not going to get the benefit of those businesses, whatever they were going to be, hotels or hospitals or stores, whatever was going to be constructed won't be there, and whatever new jobs were going to be created as a result of these new buildings, those jobs aren't going to be here either. But probably the most ridiculous news story that I've heard over the last few days, and I want to save it for last because it's so out there, had to do with Elizabeth Warren and her claiming now to have the DNA proof that she is, in fact, a Native American. Because, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been claiming that she's Native American. I think the whole controversy came because she had checked uh, Native American as ethnicity uh, at Harvard Law. And, of course, the inference is maybe she derives some type of benefit by being a Native American. Because we know in the culture that we live in today, if you can be a member of a certain group, right, of people uh, that is either, you know, oppressed or you're just one of these politically correct groups of people that you get all sorts of special benefits by membership in that group. And so maybe uh, if Elizabeth Warren is claiming to be a Native American, maybe she derives some type of benefit. Maybe Harvard derives some type of benefit from being able to say that we have this Native American on our faculty. And who knows? I mean, maybe she's been claiming she was Native American for a long time. And who knows how many special breaks she might have got based on some kind of affirmative action program that benefited. So all this came out. And of course, people make fun of her because she's clearly not Native American. I mean, she doesn't look like she's an idiot at all. And of course, Donald Trump is the most famous person who's been calling her Pocahontas. And it's actually quite funny. And, uh, you know, the president does have a good sense of humor. I'll definitely give him that. And he's been, been calling her uh, Pocahontas. And of course, you know, 
Um, Elizabeth Warren likes to pretend that by calling her Pocahontas, he is demeaning or making fun of Native Americans, which, of course, he is not doing. He is making fun of a person who is claiming to be a Native American when she's not. I mean, it's it's Elizabeth Warren who is basically making fun of the Native Americans by pretending she's one of them, but that she's a member of the tribe, right? Uh, and it's Donald Trump that's pointing out the absurdity of that claim. And so it's no disrespect at all uh, to Native Americans or Pocahontas. It's just basically calling out uh, Elizabeth Warren because she's a liar. So apparently Elizabeth Warren decided to have a DNA test to show that she was, in fact, Native American. And she had that test, and she put out the results as if it actually proved that she was Native American. And she's actually demanding that Donald Trump pay her a million dollars. Because when Donald Trump did one of his rallies, he talked about paying Elizabeth Warren a million dollars if she could prove with a DNA test that she was Native American. And now she's saying, oh, oh, I've proved it, so I want my million dollars. And first of all, there is no standing offer by Donald Trump to pay Elizabeth Warren a million dollars if she can prove she's Native American. What was actually said at that uh, rally, if you actually listen to the entire unedited clip, he said that if Elizabeth Warren was the Democratic nominee, and if she ran against him as president, if during the debates, you know, she brought up her heritage, Donald Trump said, hey, you know what I'll do then? I will offer her a million dollars if she can get a DNA test to prove that she's Native American. Then we'll see if she accepts the challenge. That is not an offer. That is speculation on a potential offer that may be made at a future presidential debate that may never happen. So there is no offer for Elizabeth Warren to accept. The whole thing is a fraud, fake news. The media was kind of showing that out of context. Her little video that she made up, you know, took us all things out of context, which again shows everything about Elizabeth Warren is fake and it's a lie, just like her heritage. Because here is the craziest part of the story is that according to this DNA test, that proves that she's Native American, right? The proof says that it's possible that six to ten generations passed that there was a Native American in her lineage. Six to ten generations. And so if it was ten generations and that's when it happened, she is over one one-thousandth Native American. I mean, what, point one percent? I mean, that is ridiculous. In fact, I think people have pointed out that if you just grab somebody randomly on the street, a random white person on the street, that they likely have more Native American DNA than does Elizabeth Warren. I mean, think about this. I mean, first of all, six generations. If you figure a generation is 20, 25 years, right? The generation is, you know, when are parents having kids? Every, you know, when they're 20, 25, you know, I mean, obviously they have their first kid. I'm not really sure, you know, where you are in, 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 the, in the order. But just say if a generation is 25 years and you're going to go back six generations, that's 150 years. I mean, if, if you had a, a, uh, a Native American relative 150 years ago, hey, you never met that person. But think about that. You're, you're great, 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 great grandfather or grandmother, Native American. Does that make you Native American? And now think about 10 generations. That's 300 years ago. 
if you take 25 years per generation, 300 years ago, there was a, a Native American. You're talking about your great, 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 great grandmother was Native American. And now you're going to claim that you're a member of that tribe and somehow you share in their oppression? I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. You know, 300 years ago, there were a lot more Native Americans than uh, Europeans living in, in the colonies. I think maybe there were, what, maybe four or five million at most, if that, maybe four million European white people. I think the Native American population 300 years ago, I don't know exactly what it was. I think it ranges from 10 million to 50 million or something like that. So chances are, if you have any relatives that go back 10 generations, there's a good chance that you got some Native American uh, blood in you, but that does not make you uh, a Native American. I mean, the amazing thing is that Elizabeth Warren would get these results and actually have the nerve to put them forward as if it proved that that she was right and to demand that Donald Trump pay her a million dollars like she's qualified for this offer because she may be or she one one thousandth percent or Native American. I mean, first of all, the media. I mean, if you look at most of the news stories, they all have the same headline like, the DNA proves that she, that Elizabeth Warren is Native American. It doesn't prove that at all. She, but the, the media is so biased that they actually took this nonsense and used it to make headlines. And I think Elizabeth Warren knew that. She knew that they would take this ridiculous document and use it as proof when it actually proves the opposite. It proves that Elizabeth Warren is less Native American than your typical man on the street. I mean, she's probably more Native American than I am because all of my grandparents came here from Eastern Europe. So, I mean, the odds that I got Native American in me are probably pretty slim. But, you know, if your ancestors have been here for multiple generations and they didn't all immigrate from Europe, you know, you probably are more of a Native American than Elizabeth Warren. And in fact, Native Americans themselves, the Cherokee Nation came out and they're really pissed that she's trying to claim that she's Indian when she's not, right? They don't want anyone just to be able to say, oh, I'm, I'm one one-thousandth Native American, therefore I'm in the tribe. I want, you know, sign me up for whatever kind of tribal benefits. You know, no, they don't. They, they want to keep their club uh, unique. I mean, plus, if anybody can claim to be an Indian, well, then, you know, you've devalued the whole minority status. I mean, if the whole country, by the standard of Elizabeth Warren, Everybody's a Native American. In fact, I bet if Donald Trump took a DNA test, he's probably got more Native American blood in here than Elizabeth Warren, which would be great. Then he can say he's the first Native American president. I mean, hell, he's, you know, you, there's all sorts of things that you can claim. But I also have a feeling, though, that when Elizabeth Warren got these results and she found out that maybe she was, you know, one one thousandth Native American, she might have went, oh, my God, score, you know. I'm actually Native American. I had no idea. I mean, I just thought I was lying all these years, and it turns out I actually am. She might have actually been thrilled to find out that she actually had any Native American blood in her at all. And maybe someone didn't tell her, hey, you know, this really doesn't count. I mean, this is barely anything. But she probably was, you know, she was so excited that, you know, it turns out that she was telling the truth. I wasn't lying. I mean, I was making it up all these years. And look at this. It turns out I actually am a Native American. Ah, ha. President Trump, take that. And so she puts out this ridiculous story uh, that, that that she's a Native American. But the legitimate Native Americans are angry about it. I mean, because they want to protect their status and the integrity of their status. And they don't want 
anybody to just claim that they're Native American. I mean, just like, look, you just can't claim that you're black, right? If you've got, you know, a black uh, ancestor somewhere in your pedigree and you're like 1% black or five, you're not black, right? You can't just say you're you're an African-American and you your people have been suffering uh, because there's, you know, a tiny amount in your lineage because people just want to protect the the benefits that accrue to being a member of these groups. And of course, I don't believe in any of these group rights they don't really exist. I mean, there's there's special privileges that people are trying to get because they are a member of a particular group, right? I don't believe in group rights. I believe in individual rights. We all have the same rights regardless of what group we may fall into, whether we're white or black, gay or straight, uh, Native American or, you know, European, you know, whatever you are, your ethnicity, or if you're, you know, you're handicapped or, you know, you, you're whatever you've got, right? You don't get special rights because you fall into one of these groups, but that's what's happened today with the identity politics and, you know, you, you whatever you identify with, now you're in a group. But I mean, a lot of this stuff is now in trouble because they've, you know, they've raised it to such levels of absurdity where, hey, anybody can claim they're a woman now if you identify as a woman. Well, now, you know, so is that, is female now a, a special group if any male can simply claim uh, that he's a female, right? I mean, you, can you simply claim to be gay? I mean, I guess anybody can claim to be gay. Right. I mean, I suppose somebody can be fired from a job and they could just decide to file a lawsuit and claim that you fired me because I was gay. Right. I mean, that could happen. I mean, I don't think if you claim to be gay that anybody asks you to prove that you're gay. I mean, right? I mean, you just claim it. I think to ask somebody to prove it, uh, you know, that would probably open them up to even more lawsuits. So, you know, you don't have to actually prove that you're gay. You just say that you're gay and then and then and you're gay. And in fact, I mean, if somebody forced you to prove that you were gay and and you actually did it you actually provided the proof then you know you're probably gay i mean you've just probably been in denial because the extent that you're willing to prove it it probably means that you've actually been gay but you know nobody is going to be asked to prove it so hey, anybody can can claim to be gay or anybody can claim based on elizabeth warren's uh standard anybody can be native american Anybody can can claim they're black, right? Now they can uh, sue you or whatever they want uh, because you know, you know that you uh, because they were fired or they didn't get promoted or they they didn't they weren't paid equal amount of money because they were black. Because gay, I mean, if you're if you're black, I mean, basically on the skin tone, you can say, look, I'm black, right? Look at me, right? But if you're gay, I mean, you can't necessarily tell that. So if someone's gonna say. Um, he fired me because I'm black. At least you can show, yes, I'm black. But, you know, I remember a very funny uh, situation that I was in years ago. I was trying to cut back my staffing out in California. I, I just needed to, you know, reduce my overhead and I needed to get rid of some of the employees, last employees. So I was talking with a branch manager and I said, well, you know, who can we, uh, you know, let go because I have to reduce spending on that branch. And so I kind of went over some of the job descriptions and what some people were doing. And so I, I picked, okay, well, let's get rid of this woman. I forget what her name was. And I remember the reaction was, well, this could be a little bit problematic getting rid of her and I said, why? He says, well, she's black and, you know, she can come back and sue us because, you know, she can claim that we fired her because she was black. So, may, you know, and then he was going to say, maybe we need to give her a warning or do some other things to kind of cover our bases before we let her go. But of course, I wasn't necessarily firing her because she wasn't doing a good job. I mean, I was firing her because I needed to cut back on my spending. But the funny thing was, I said, so 
I'm going to get sued for firing somebody who's black, but I didn't even know she was black when I decided to fire her. I had never seen her. All I saw was the name. And she didn't have a name that would suggest she was black. I mean, it wasn't like Shaniqua or something. I mean, she had just a pretty common name, and I had no idea what her race was. I mean, I, I guess I didn't think she was Chinese. I mean, she didn't have a last name like Chang or something that would make me think that she was Asian. She just had your, your typical name. And so I was just, you know, getting rid of her because I had a cutback, and so I picked this person. Obviously, it has nothing to do with race because I didn't know what the race was. Yet all of a sudden, I'm being told, hey, you better be careful because maybe she's going to sue you because she's going to say you fired her because you're black. No, even though I didn't fire her because she was black, because I didn't even know she was black. Now, well, when once they sue you, you're guilty until proven innocent. How am I supposed to prove that I didn't know? I mean, look, it never came up in the conversation. I didn't even think to ask. I didn't even care what the ethnicity was. I mean, I just wanted to figure out how I who was the most expendable person in the office because I wanted to save some money. And so, you know, and it happened to be this woman who happened to be black, and I didn't even know. But so obviously. If anybody could just claim, well, I'm black, it's like, you know, I'm 2% black or 5% black, well, then, shoot, you know, any white person can now file a lawsuit and claim that, you know, you fired me because I was black, you know, whether you know that they're black or not. Well, it's in their DNA. And, and so the Native Americans, they, they want to preserve the, the status of their minority status. They don't want everybody to just be able to say that I'm Native American because now they're if everybody's a Native American, they're not a minority anymore. So they want to protect the integrity. So they are pissed off at Elizabeth Warren. And as Elizabeth Warren is trying to out there, she's trying to say, oh, Donald Trump is uh, you know, anti-Native American. He's making fun of Native Americans. You know, he's he, he's minimizing their suffering. No, he's not. It's Elizabeth Warren who's trying to exploit their potential suffering for her own political benefit. She is trying to exploit the Native Americans. And of course, you know, regardless of how some Native Americans may have suffered in the past, right, regardless of the way blacks may have suffered in the past as slaves, regardless of the way Jews suffered in the past as slaves. Look, I'm not out there asking somebody to feel sorry for me because thousands of years ago, my ancestors were enslaved. In fact, the first slaves were Slavs. That's where the word comes from, slaves. It's not, blacks were not the only people that were enslaved. There Plenty of white people uh, were slaves. And in fact, white people aren't the only ones that own slaves. And again, I'm not, you know, Arabs own slaves and, you know, they're not necessarily white, but there are a lot of blacks that own slaves. There were a lot of blacks in Africa that owned African slaves. There were actually blacks in America that owned black slaves. In fact, there was actually some white slaves in America. Wasn't that many, but they existed. So slavery is not just about being black, right? People have been enslaving other people uh, for thousands of years. It's only recently that basically, you know, slavery is gone. Uh, but it happened for a long time. But regardless of how your ancestors may have suffered, that's irrelevant to your current status. Right, because what counts is what's happened to you personally, not what happened to people that you've never met, that people who died decades or centuries before you were born. That's immaterial. Right? Trying to say because my ancestors suffered that I'm now in some special status of victimhood, and because you know I'm in this victimized class that I'm entitled to some kind of special perks or special benefits that we're going to masquerade as rights. But again, that's what Elizabeth Warren is trying to do. This whole thing is kind of like, 
uh, laying the foundation for her victimhood uh, campaign against Donald Trump were just, it's not just Native Americans, but it's African Americans and Hispanics and women and the handicapped and homosexual or LBGT. TQ, whatever it's called nowadays, all these groups trying to get them all organized together to to look to loot, right? They all want something for nothing. They want to make uh, the privileged, uh, you know, straight white men who have all this money that they didn't earn, that they've somehow, you know, just ripped from the backs of the, the actual producers, right? And they want to go in there and make them pay their fair share and redistribute wealth. This is the beginning of that whole type of campaign. And the problem is, it's actually going to resonate. That is the scary thing. It is going to resonate because we are going to be in a bad recession in 2020. Probably not you know, by November, but by 2020, we'll be in a bad recession. It's all going to be blamed on Trump. It's all going to be blamed on the tax cuts. It's all going to be blamed on deregulation. And the solution is going to be to make them pay. Right to take all this money and divvy it up. Right, an election is an advanced auction on the sale of stolen goods, and Elizabeth Warren is going to say, "Vote for me, all of you victims out there, all of the members of all these various uh, classes of people. We're going to all band together like a mob, and we're going to take back what is ours from these people, these rich people who have stolen from us." (laughs) 